This morning I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Like Abraham and Sarah, we live life here by a promise. And so as the events of their lives unfold, they also speak to us uh, by means of God's Spirit speaking to us through His Word. We reflect on that this morning as we read from Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over the land, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called it the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word for us this morning. Um, I generally use the NIV, and the NIV translates verse uh, 13. Truly, uh, truly, I have seen him who sees me. And that's kind of important for our message this morning. Um, so with that in mind, we turn uh, to contemplate this particular passage. 
As I was, when I was thinking about uh, this particular passage, and especially uh, naming it the Church of uh, Beer Lehigh Roy, which doesn't make us into a pub necessarily, but the translation of those words is the Church of the Living God who sees me. And I was thinking about the names that we give to our churches. For example, if we think of a, a church that calls itself Trinity Lutheran or Trinity Baptist or whatever, uh, Trinity, you might find that the focus of that particular congregation is on knowing God in all of, all of his fullness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A journey church might cause us to expect that if we were part of that church, we would feel like we were on a journey with them to the promised land, perhaps. New hope, what might characterize that church? A recognition of the reality that in Christ we have this new hope that we don't have apart from him, perhaps, would dominate the way in which they served or lived in that particular community. So this morning I want to think about a church that would be called the Church of the Living God Who Sees Me. And think about what that might look like for us, what it teaches us about being the Church of the Living God Who Sees Us here in Rudyard. To do that, we look at this particular story and we realize that the story does not begin with Hagar. It begins with Abram and Sarai. They have been living in the land of, Israel, of uh, Palestine, in the land of Canaan now, for some 10 years. You might remember that uh, they came there because of God's promise to them that he would make them into a great nation and that they would have descendants of all kinds. And 10 years later, there's still no child to bear witness to the fulfillment of that promise. And so Abram and Sarai come together, and Sarai comes up with this plan, of which Abram approves. You know, I don't know why I can't get pregnant, but maybe God would work the, uh, his miracle in this particular way. I'll give you my maidservant as a second wife, and if she gets pregnant, then I can claim her as the primary wife as my child. Maybe God will bless us through this. And so that's what they do, and it comes to pass that Hagar becomes pregnant. And then all kinds of things begin to happen. Hagar despises Sarah. Sarah is frustrated, despises what has happened, probably jealous that she became pregnant and Sarah didn't. She comes to Abram and says, this is all your fault. This is all backstory, but can you imagine Abram, when he heard that, it was your idea. This is your problem. He basically says, this is your problem. You figure it out. Which didn't help matters because uh, Sarai deals harshly with Hagar and Hagar uh, flees, which is 
why she comes to this place in the desert, this well. In all of this, we are not told anything about how Hagar handled it. Did she have any input into any of this? Did she have any um, feelings about what was going on? We just know that she became, she began to despise her, her mistress and she is pregnant. But here's where God enters the story this morning. The angel of the Lord comes to her and asks her, where have you come from? And where are you going? I think that's a, an interesting way to start a conversation, yet we find oftentimes that that's what God does. Elijah, when he fled from uh, Queen Jezebel, comes to the mountain of God, and after a series of events, God comes to him and asks him this question. What are you doing here? What's the story from your perspective? I think it says a lot to us as uh, the people of God to realize that in his grace, God... basically says the same thing to us and invites us to say the same thing to each other. Instead of passing judgment or thinking we know what's going on, ask. I had a conversation with some of my uh, co-workers this week. They assumed that I knew what they were upset about, that I knew the story. I said, wait a minute, I don't know the story. You have to tell me. And so we move forward. It's the same here. God takes the time to say to Sarah or to Hagar, what's your story? Why are you here? He invites her to realize that he cares. To realize that he is with her, but he cares about who she is and what she is experiencing and how that relates to his story. She tells him, I'm running away from my mistress. And then the angel says to her, first of all, you need to go back. But he also says, you know what? You need to understand something. You are part of my story. I have promised, I am promising you that you will have descendants, that you will have a great nation come from you, that you are vital to this whole plan that I have for the world. You have a place in my kingdom. There are often people who have a bad experience with church, perhaps, or with certain people, and they, they leave, and um, we so- sometimes assume that we know the story, or they are assuming that uh, we know the story, and um, just the simple act of recognizing them in their place is important as people of God living as his, his angels, so to speak, his representatives in the world to give that kind of grace to those who need it. 
to help them to understand that they have a place in God's story. I think it's also instrumental that uh, the angel says to her, you have to return to your mistress and submit to her. What's that all about? I think it's an expression of God's grace. She needs them, and they need her. They are, after all, even though they are flawed uh, considerably, still his agents of his plan. The promised one will come through, the, through them. God is working through them. They are the people that she needs to connect with. It's still the same today. Flawed as we may be as a church, as the church, we injure uh, people significantly, but we still need each other. She needs them because she needs to remember that God is still looking out, looking out for her. They need to, to her to come back because they need to be confronted. God needs to confront them with the reality of his grace. It would be very easy for them to just simply wipe this under the rug, to simply have no thought about what they had done except for the occasional remembrance. To not learn anything from it. But in her coming back, they are faced with the reality of having to deal with that problem together. And as we know, that's how we really learn about how gracious God's grace is. And how much we depend upon his grace as we think about all the wrong things that we've done, as well as all the good stuff. We realize we're not perfect. We realize we're no more special than the person next door other than God is using us in his way by his grace and his love and his compassion. So what does the church look like then? Who lives as people who know that they belong to the God who sees them. Obviously, first of all, grace is very important. Recognizing, hey, we're all sinners saved by grace. Helping not only we ourselves to realize that, but others as well. That God is gracious, that God sees them, that God understands, he gets them in their need, in their situation. We do that by asking the question, what's going on? And listening to the answer. We do that by reminding them that they also, like us, all of us, are children of God. He has a plan for their lives, whether they know what it is or not, He's God, and he cares, and he's going to work it out according to his purpose. And thirdly, we also need to realize then that as his agents of that grace and of that mercy, that we also have to face the realities of our experience. 
as we talked about this morning, the fact that we need repentance, that the fact that we need to be in dialogue with each other, to care about each other, to work things out together, because that shows us how much we need God's grace. As part of our confession, we read from Psalm 139. I love that particular passage. Search me and know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts. I did a a message on that particular passage uh, a few years ago now, I believe. But the awareness of that, you know, think about as a young person, I think about as a young person, I I would say that and say, hey, God, I'm an open book. There's nothing wrong with me. Go ahead and search me and, 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 and prove to me that, hey, I'm your man. With experience, the older I get, the more I realize that you can also say those words in a very different way. Lord, I'm a mess. And if I don't think I'm a mess, hey, God, I know from experience that we're not perfect. So show me what I need to know. Because you are the God who sees me. You are the God who gets me. You are the God who understands me. That I may be someone who, having been seen by you, can see others. Having been seen by you can seek to understand rather than judge. To get to what is the reality, what is the issue, what is the thing that God wants to explain. I had uh, a volunteer at Good Samaritan at our, at our food pantry who um, wanted to make sure that he got to know the people who were coming through our doors. Not just to see them as they came in, but to really see them. To take seriously kind of what we're talking about this morning. Anyway. One time he noticed that this gentleman who came in was looking a little distraught. And so he follows him out, out to his car. They have a conversation. He brings him back in. He says to me, we need to pray for this person. And after a brief conversation about what was going on, we did that. And then this volunteer says to this person, Now you know, I see you. We see you. God sees you. Which for that person meant, you are not alone in whatever you are going through. If we could do that as the church of God, of the living God who sees us, and extend that grace in that way to one another and to the people that we deal with. We would be good representatives of the living God who gets, who understands, who sees us and has a plan not only for our redemption but for our lives. 
Think about that. He gets us, he sees us, he understands us, he redeems us in Christ by his death and his resurrection and gives us a place in his story. We live like that. The world will know how good and great God is. Amen. Gracious God, thank you for reminding us this morning that First of all, you use flawed people. That you get us. That you understand us. That you, um, in spite of all of that, have redeemed us because of your great love for us. And it's so easy, Lord, just to say all of that and to think all of that and to uh, not think about the ramifications of that as we listen to this story and this message this morning, we are reminded that we need your grace every day. We are reminded that you call us to live as your people and that you call us to reflect that grace, that love, that willingness to see us, to get and to understand one another. So, Lord, forgive us when we, when we jump to conclusions. Forgive us when we think we know, but really don't. And base our decisions on that. Lord, help us always, as your representatives, to seek to understand. If nothing else, for the sake of letting that person know that you see them, that we see them, and that you see them. And through us, perhaps, by your grace, they may come to know that they belong in your story as well. That whatever it is they are going through doesn't change that. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.